All right, thank you guys. Be seated. And as you're uh, being seated, take your Bibles or your smart device, whatever it is that you use to follow along. And let's open together this morning to the book of James chapter 1. We're continuing our verse-by-verse exposition from uh, this very practically rich book uh, that I find to be very uh, challenging and thus very stimulating. Uh, It's one of those books that makes us very uncomfortable, and that's always uh, a very healthy thing when it comes to our spiritual growth. And we're so glad that you're to be a part, uh, that you've chosen to be a part of our worship experience this morning, especially if you're our guest in person or watching online. And we just uh, encourage you that uh, whether in uh, in attendance here or in person or online, that as God's Spirit speaks to you and challenges you, that if there's any way that we can help you in the course of the week or during this service, uh, we hope that you would just uh, text uh, the word FL Respond uh, to the number 833-571-3475. And it may be one of those times when God is leading you to make significant decisions whether that is to become a follower of Christ, we would love to have a conversation with you about what that means uh, to become a follower of Christ, how you can do that as God's Spirit is leading. Maybe you're already a follower of Christ, but you're not part of a church family, and we would love to be able to help you in that process as well. So whether today or during the course of this week, just text that uh, FL respond to that number 833 833- uh, whatever it is, it's posted somewhere. <laughs> there we go, five seven one three four seven five. All right. Uh, Robin Dunbar is a he's an uh, evolutionary psychologist for Oxford University on the on the faculty of Oxford University. Uh, he's been writing a great deal about the human brain. That the human brain uh, does not function well in our present world. We have adapted. Uh, to function in this present world, but he says that we, that we operate, that optimally, optimally we perform best in communities of about 60 to 100 people, which interestingly is the same number of people in those first tribes in Africa. He says that in our culture today, when we function best among that number of 60 to 100 people, People. He said, think about the number of people that actually speak into your life, that you allow to speak into your life. Things, people that you allow to bring images, ideas, feelings into your life. It's not 60 to 100. In our day and time, that number would have to be multiplied exponentially. But when it comes to our, our well-being, that when it comes to input and output in regard to to things that we say, things that we hear and leading and managing, nurturing, interacting with people, we do best among 60 to 100 people, but we allow hundreds of thousands of individuals and things to speak into our lives. Think about all the voices that you allow to have a part of your life. Think about in our cultural, those that we have deemed as cultural influencers, celebrities, athletes, social media personalities, that in the promotion of things, uh, whether it's a product or whether it's their their opinions, uh, we have these individuals who are cultural influencers who have hundreds of thousands, even millions of followers. And yet, when you stop and think about it, they promote nothing of worth, 
of lasting worth, value. They offer nothing virtuous. They offer nothing, very few. They offer little that that would ever inspire, that would motivate, that would elevate the human spirit, that would challenge us to the very best version of ourselves that, that we might possibly be. And yet we allow them space in our head and in our lives. James, in our text this morning, offers some wonderful insight because James is of the opinion that you and I as followers of Christ, we are knowledgeable influencers. That while those that have been deemed cultural influencers, while, while they promote things and hold forth things that will soon fade with their death or the death of those who follow after them. James says that you and I have a knowledge, we are knowledgeable influencers in that even if we hold forth our faith and the witness and the testimony of our faith among the norm of 60 to 100 people, you and I will have far greater influence of eternal worth than any cultural influencer of our day. I want you to listen to what he writes here in this first clause of verse 19. He says, you know this, my beloved brothers and sisters, and what he's saying that we know, he's speaking of what came prior, not what follows. And you'll remember where we left off last week, what James has concluded with in verse 18 is that in the exercise of his will, that is in the exercise of God's will, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we, that is the believers and followers of Christ, we as a messianic community, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creation. So James says, this is what you know. You know that God has done something in in your life. God is doing a redemptive work in your exhibit A. You're the first fruits of a greater redemptive work that God is doing. And so for the entirety of chapter one, he wants us to understand the influence that we have as this unique, distinctive community, why we need to to keep in check our, our temptations, our emotions the circumstances of life that would cause us to become angry and and bitter and to that community to lash out and to have the desire to destroy those that, that would oppress you. In fact, what we will find in the value of chapter one is it really kind of lays the foundation for every subject to follow in chapters two, three, four, and five. But James says that this kind of, of thinking that wants to, to lash out at, at the oppressors, those that, that keep us down. And remember, these, these were a poverty-stricken people. And those that, that, would, that would oppress us, and those that, that would burden us, those that would keep us into subjection, James makes it clear that, that as followers of Christ, it gives us actually a unique advantage. That because of our adverse circumstances and the trials in life, uh, we are in a position now for God to do something in our life. We have a vantage point that God is able to do through our suffering. He is able to do something formative in our lives that could not be accomplished otherwise. That in fact, the rich and the oppressors of you are going to miss out on. 
So James continually in this chapter has talked about our perseverance, our endurance through these trials and circumstances because God is doing something significant through us. And that through these eyes of faith, we are able to see through our circumstances that we do not allow them to hold us hostage, but we see through our circumstances through a greater work that God is doing. And he has said where we left off last week, you're exhibit A. You church as followers of Christ, you are exhibit A to the world of the greater work of redemption that God is accomplishing and is going to accomplish for the entire created order. And now then what he's going to do in verses 19 through 27, he's going to offer a series of exhortations. Because of what you know, because what you're going through is is something eternal is at stake, James is saying, let me exhort you all the more. And he's going to offer three sets of exhortations beginning, we're going to concern ourselves this morning with verses 19 through 21, where he exhorts us in in regard to our speech behavior. That is how I respond to my adversity when I feel negative emotions welling up within me, the bitterness and the anger about the circumstances of life. You're gonna respond verbally, we're a verbal people. And so he's going to offer exhortation regarding our speech behavior. Then he's going to offer, uh, in verse 22 through 24, he's going to offer exhortation regarding our hearing and our doing. How there ought be no difference between what we hear regarding the word of God and how we act it out in our life. And then he'll conclude in verses 5, 25 through 27, describing and exhorting us in our understanding of pure and undefiled religion. It's one of two occasions in the New Testament where the word religion, a word for which I, for the most part, have a disdain, because I don't consider myself to be a religious person. I consider myself to be a follower of Christ. But James is going to use it in, in one of two instances in the New Testament where religion is actually used in a positive way. To describe the faith that is to characterize our lives. But he says you have to make an appropriate response. And so what James is doing is he continues to sketch for us this ethical matrix, if you will, that when you find yourself, and when we find ourselves in times of adversity, in times of trial, tribulation, suffering, however you want to describe it, he said there is, James describes for us an ethical matrix that ought to determine how I respond in those circumstances. And here in our passage today in verses 19 through 21, he offers a a matrix, an ethical matrix of what is proper and appropriate in our verbal response. Because most of us are not silent sufferers when trial comes. We tend to speak in ways that either represent our faith or we speak harshly in ways that are not representative of our faith. And so what we have here are a series of admonitions of what is a proactive, positive response verbally to the trials of life that we will inevitably face. Well, the first response that James says that we should have is that we should respond obediently. We should respond obediently. In fact, he gives three clear commands 
as verse 19 continues, he's already said, you know this, my beloved brothers and sisters. That is based upon what we previously have been told, knowing that what I do and knowing that something eternal is at stake in how I respond to the circumstances of life, of what others witness and see in me. He says, now then in regard to your speech, everyone must. This is, this is imperative language, non-negotiable. It's not a divine suggestion, but that's where it gets challenging. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And if we're confessional, for the most part, this is just the opposite of what we normally do. Let's give them the consideration that they're due. The first command, everyone must, he says, be quick to hear. A little background to better understanding that at the core of, at the heart, at the core of every conflict is judgment. Judgment of others is at the core of every conflict. You have opinions. Another person has opinions. And so we, we tend to listen to one another because you have your opinions, I have my opinions. We tend, our tendency, human nature, and this is what James is calling us to do. He's doing to do that which is supernatural, not natural. Our tendency is to entrench ourselves to fight for our opinions to hold on to my opinions. And because I have my opinions and, and you have your opinions, I'm going to judge you. Now to be quick to hear is something completely different. James is saying, when I, when I feel anger and bitterness rising up within me, when I, when I feel conflict with another, to be quick to hear is to listen empathetically. See, most of us listen to others when they speak or when we're in a conflict. It, most of us tend to listen autobiographically. That is, we listen from the perspective of our opinions and our viewpoints. And we make judgments of this other person in front of me with whom I have conflict. I make judgments of them based upon my opinions. And auto, autobiographical uh, listening is just listening and filtering, filtering everything through my opinions. But empathetic listening, being an empathetical listener, is to hear someone from their perspective. To be empathetic in my listening means I, I want to listen to this person. I want to hear what they're saying, I want, I want to know everything that came to bear upon them. I want to get to know them and to know what it was that brought them to this place of understanding. That coming to a place, <clears throat> getting to know them in a way that, that I can appreciate why they have the opinion that they had. That there's a multiplicity of things, a multiplicity of factors that came into their life that I knew nothing about. 
that brought them to this particular viewpoint that they hold in their life. If you've read To Kill a Mockingbird, Atticus, the father, was always giving life lessons to his children. And one of those conversations that stood out to me was when he was talking to Scout. And he was trying to explain to Scout, his daughter, why, why some people are the way they are. And he said, sometimes what you have to do, you have to, you, have to, you, have to get in, you have to put on the skin of somebody. You have to get inside the skin of somebody. And, and when you walk around inside their skin, and then you can, begin, you can begin to understand why they are the way that, that they are. Quick to hear. Most of us are not. In Shakespeare's Hamlet, Polonius offered this bit of advice to his son, Laertes. He said, give every man thine ear, but few thy voice. Give every man thine ear, but few thy voice. You see, when we're, when we're quick to hear, we don't become reactionaries. If I'm quick to hear, I'm listening thoughtfully. And it's only as I make a, it's only as I'm a thoughtful hearer that I can respond thoughtfully. But if I'm quick to speak, I'm usually going to speak in a way that is less than thoughtful. Because here's what James realizes in the three admonitions that he gives to us. Whatever it is in our life, and this is what James is speaking to, whatever it is in our life, whatever our circumstance that in that moment provokes me, whatever it is that provokes me, there is, a, there is a window of time, there is a moment between whatever it is that provokes me and my response, my reaction, between these two, what provokes and how I react, there's a window of opportunity, a time, where I decide how I'm gonna respond. So James is offering practical advice that in that between time, between provoke being pro provocation, between provocation and reaction, first response, I'm going to be quick to hear. Secondly, I'm going to be slow to speak. Ambrose said it well, that when you speak out of anger, you will give the greatest talk you will ever regret. When you speak out of anger, you will give the greatest speech you will ever come to regret. Slow to speak. If we're not slow to speak, we're reactionaries. We allow emotions to control us. Zeno, Jew, uh, Greek philosopher, father of Stoicism, he had a great insight, common sense once again. He says, we have two ears and one mouth. 
which means we ought to listen twice as much as we talk. That's what we do in that interim time between provocation and reaction. Determine, I'm going to be quick to hear, I'm going to be slow to speak. You see, delay, we have to understand this idea of being slow to speak, delaying my response. And and he's not talking about, listen, he's not talking about being slow to speak. He's not talking about casual conversation. He's talking about caustic reactions, harsh reactions, confrontational reactions. That's what he's speaking to. James James recognizes there is a common sense here that when I delay, when I feel those negative, bitter, angry emotions welling up, when I delay, when I deliberately delay, well, that's, that's the enemy of anger. That's the remedy for anger. Because in that moment of delay, when I choose to delay, It gives me opportunity to think about outcomes. It gives me opportunity to think about options, to think about whether this is constructive or destructive in what's about to happen. Be quick to hear. Be slow to speak. Then he says, be be slow to anger. In other words, James is saying that our anger is 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 an inappropriate representation of faith in the context of adversity. That anger is never the right response, it's never the appropriate response in reflecting the faith that we we confess. It's a reminder that you and I, that, that consistency is the key. When we talk about our witness and our testimony to the world of the faith that is in us, faith is the handle by which we carry everything. Faith is the handle that we carry our baggage, that we trust in God, that is taking us somewhere else. Otherwise, it is our negative emotions that handle us. And so as James talks about what is an appropriate response for people of faith, if if you truly want to be obedient, then be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. There's a second admonition. Notice that James offers here in, in verse 20. This is, this is to be, this is our response, our effectual response. So we respond obediently, we are to respond effectually. What is going to affect the cause of Christ in my, in my reaction? For a man's anger does not bring about the righteousness of God, for the anger of man stands in conflict to, to the righteousness of God. In fact, the, the anger of man is a contradiction to the righteousness of God, the justice of God that we are to pursue in, in life. And again, this anger that James is speaking to, again, it, it's, not just, it's not just the frustration that we all experience in the normal routines of, of everyday life. He is talking about a lashing out kind of anger. He's talking about an anger that, that is violent. He's talking about, uh, uh, he's talking about an, an anger that, that lashes out against oppressors, that, that seeks to do violence. 
And as we will see when we come to chapter 3 and verse 17 all the way through chapter 4 and verse 12, James is going to say that kind of thinking is diabolical. It's not of God. It's a contradiction to the nature and, and the character of God. And so this anger that so many display among you, and James has seen it, there are those within that messianic community that want to rebel. They want to do violence against those that would seek to oppress them. But he's saying this does not affect the righteousness of God. It doesn't produce the righteousness of God. Our anger, our human anger, it doesn't bring forth the justice that, that God desires. See, Jesus put a great deal on this. If you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, was, Jesus judged individuals on the basis of, of what was their faith affecting, their so-called faith. How effectual was it in displaying the grace and the mercies of God? How well does it portray the righteousness of justice of God that is achieved by faith in Christ, Christ Jesus? Matthew chapter 7, verse 23. We saw that those who produce lawlessness, well, they were condemned. Jesus was always looking at effect, what was being produced. What was being brought forth, the same in, in Mark's gospel, chapter 14, verse 6. We just finished a study through, through the book of Romans. We see that even the apostle Paul, he focused on, on effects. Romans chapter 2 and verse 10, chapter 13, verse 10. What is faith affecting? Is it effectual in bringing about the mercies of God, the righteousness of God? Or is it just portraying? the anger of man, the natural, intuitive response of mankind. Someone has well said that anger always outlasts hurt. It always does. Anger always outlasts hurt. What anger manifests and what anger brings forth from any of us, the damage and destruction that is done, the circle of destruction, the layers of destruction that are accomplished by, by our angry outburst and our angry actions, far more long-lasting, far more destructive than the hurt that I might have experienced in the, in the moment. You ever been kicked by a mule? I mean, this is just, again, common sense. No one who's ever kicked by a mule says, you know what, I'm gonna kick mules in return. It's foolish. You get bit by a dog, you're angry. Well, I don't decide then. You know what? I think I'm gonna start biting dogs in return. You know, that, that, that's ludicrous kind of thinking. James says it's no less ludicrous, always thinking in terms of bitterness and, and revenge. Seneca, Greek philosopher, said it does an angry person well to look in the mirror and to see himself. 
to see how awful it looks. It does an angry person well to look in the mirror and see themselves and to see how awful it looks. If you ever see a parent out in public, angrily grabbing a child in great anger, lashing out at that child, you watch the response of everyone around that situation, that's awful. That's awful. Doesn't look good. You go to a little league ball game and you watch parents who act like the south side of a northbound horse up in the stands. You look at the face of every other spectator watching those parents in the stands. And by their faces, you can tell it's awful. You go to the airport, watch individuals whose experience flight delay after flight delay, and you watch them lashing out in anger. It's awful. And that's as close to the mirror as you will ever get. James realizes how bad anger looks. For those who are to be exhibit A of the redemptive purposes of God. And that's why James says finally in verse 21 that you and I, in the midst of our storms and our pain and our suffering and our heart, and listen, he's writing to an audience for whom their circumstances never changed. I mean, this, this, these people of the Anawim, this Anawim impoverished people who had nothing. Uh, I could say they, they, you know, they trusted God day to day. They trusted God meal to meal. These are people who had absolutely nothing but trust in God. And so these people, their, their circumstances never changed over the course of their lifetime. And while there were those that wanted to rebel and, and to fight back and to revolt against their oppressors, James says there's, there's a more redemptive response. Therefore, verse 21, ridding yourselves of all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. And that's what he considers that kind of thinking to be, as we will see in chapter 3, 17 through 4, 12. It's diabolical, it's wicked, it's filthy something that stands in, in, in complete contrast to the nature and the character of God. But ridding yourselves of all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Don't be scared. Don't be afraid to get rid of that which distracts your attention. Tolstoy said that. Don't be afraid to get rid of that which distracts your attention. I would say it like this. Don't be afraid to put away from that that has no formative value in your life. Don't be afraid of getting rid of those things that hold you back in becoming everything that God would have you to be in your life. 
fashioning you into the likeness of Christ. When he speaks of ridding oneself, it's language not unfamiliar to the New Testament. This, it's really baptismal language. It's the idea of taking off the old and putting on the new. Very powerful imagery for the, for the New Testament believer. That when I come to faith in Christ Jesus and I begin growing in my relationship with him, I, I recognize there are things that I need to put away. The spirit as he is doing his work uh, brings to mind and heart those things that, um, that, that are both sinful, those things that are not constructive, those things that are not contributing to the life that I aspire to as a follower of Christ. And so each day in all of these verbs that James uses, again, like last week, they're in the present tense, imperfect. That means it hasn't been accomplished yet. It means it's something that I'm continually always doing in the present tense. And it will never be perfected. It's an imperfect situation. So each day is dying to self. Each day is, is ridding ourselves of filthiness and all that remains in weak wickedness. In humility, receive, he says, welcome, absorb, take, surrender to. Receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. The implication of James is that as a follower of Christ, God is doing a work in your life. This implanted word is really without precedent, but just seeing the writings of, of James, this, this implanted word is the word of truth that we see in verse 18. It's the saving word that we see in verse 21. It's the perfect law that we will see when we come to verse 25, the law of liberty. It is the royal law that we'll see in chapter two and verse 18. This is what God is doing. This is what God is fashioning in contrast to the words of man that bring destruction, that bring violence. Oh, you receive gladly, you, you absorb, you take in the implanted word of God that is accomplishing something different in you. Because as a people of faith, you know that through your circumstances, as you look through your circumstances, you have the confidence, the conviction, and the hope that God is doing something, something that eye has not seen, ear cannot hear, that not even the, the mind of man can even imagine. Faith believes that. James is speaking to a people that, that do understand the transitory nature of life. In hindsight, we know that their circumstances never changed. In fact, their circumstances unimaginably got worse. Their circumstances never changed in their lifetime. But their hope is not in the things of this world, but in the world that is to come. And knowing their eternal destiny has a very real impact on their present existence. In Tibet, you can see a wonderful art form, these mandalas that are, that are created from sand made by uh, Buddhist monks, if you've ever seen them, they, they, they have these geometric designs that they create with, with colored sand. I mean, they're, they're masterful creations. And if you've ever watched it being done, there's, there, I mean, they spend hours, they spend days 
making these, fashioning these geometric, intricate designs. And after it's completed and there's a moment of viewing, it is ceremonially destroyed. That there might be a clear understanding of the transitory nature of life. We are God's masterpiece within his created order. And you and I are knowledgeable influencers. What you and I know about Christ Jesus and have experienced with him and in him and through him is of immeasurable influence. We are not cultural influencers. We are eternal influencers. And how we respond, what people hear us say, is of significance and weight. Don't ever take your influence for granted. Father, you have entrusted much to us, calling us to be the people of God calling us to be the church, the followers of Christ. That we might bear witness to our world of your redemptive purposes being accomplished. And Father, we pray for ourselves that as we go forth, that in word and deed, that to our world in our respective places, that where our feet are, we might be harbingers of hope, that ours would not just be normal lives, but supernatural lives. That we might exhibit to our world a transformational existence because of our relationship with the resurrected Christ and his dwelling within us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.